OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to Supporters Fund Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potvin. And today we'd like to welcome Greg Smith. Greg, how are you today? Doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And, and Gregory or Greg, which one do you prefer? Greg, it's fine. Love it. Greg, where are you calling in from? I'm in Atlanta today. I like it. Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, sir. And is it hot that's, there today? That's, it's, it's always hot here. And today <laughs> is no exception. <laughs> awesome. Well, Toronto's still and uh, kind of falling right behind you. It's nice and hot here too. I think it's 30 and muggy and rainy and tomorrow it's going to rain for four days. So we're, oh, uh, we're taking all the rain from everybody. Okay. Well, pretty excited to dive into uh, what you're doing because you've been working on a lot of great things over the years and especially from the time you sold your company all the way through. And I kind of want to dive back into that. And if you could share a little bit about your background, kind of where you've come from, where you are today, and then one thing about you that nobody would know. Okay. Uh, well, I my uh, undergrad studies were mechanical engineering, um, and then I thought it would be a good idea to get a master's degree in international business. And because I liked beer um, and I thought a mechanical engineer, why not learn German? So I ended up learning German and uh, studying over in Germany as well as here in the States. And uh, after finishing my master's, I got married, uh, moved to Atlanta for a couple of years, worked for a company here in industrial products. So I was on the sales and marketing side of that. We did an acquisition in Germany. I went over, helped for a couple of years to integrate that company in. Uh, got into sales for a couple of years, then went back to Germany, um, came back to the States. And uh, if anyone knows if they've been to a foreign subsidiary and then they come back into corporate, it's, it's a readjustment coming back into the big corporate umbrella. And I didn't really do so well. So after a few years, um, I decided I wanted to get out of industrial product sales and marketing and get into the software business. So in the year two, 1998, I left and uh, went to work for a restart software company in Atlanta. Restart meaning they've already been through their series A and they had to raise more money, not because they were growing fast, but because it didn't work first. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I like to think about, you know, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And that's what I got in that two and a half years at my first software startup. I learned a lot about what didn't work in a startup environment, but that certainly helped me later started, uh, our company at Vectus here, basically in the basement of the home I still live in. Uh, in uh, November of 2000, it was a software as a service platform for the U.S. mortgage industry. We essentially helped mortgage banks to connect all the parties to a transaction together over the web and to share documents securely over the web as opposed to back 20 years ago via paper. So um, that business grew, did very well. And um, in 2007, uh, Xerox heard about us 
and they wanted to own it. And so we went through a dance and ultimately our business was acquired by Xerox in October of 2007. I love it. And then ever since then, it's just been uh, working with yeah. early stage companies and, and working your way through and helping them grow their business. Yeah, well, Jeff, I stayed, I stayed with Xerox for about three and a half years. Um, as you probably remember, and certainly some of your viewers will remember, that was a uh, challenging time in the mortgage industry, as it turns out. We didn't know that at the time. but um, And so the company that I thought I sold them was not the company that they ended up buying. And so I stayed to fix it. And, uh, and that's, you know, after three and a half years, it was time for me to move on. And so um, I left in literally 10 years ago last month uh, and became a full-time angel investor at that point. Awesome. I had, yeah, I'd done a couple of deals while I was still there, but I basically went full-time at that point. Well, congratulations on the 10 years. That's amazing. Yeah. It's very exciting ride. Yep. Thank you. So I want to dive back into a bit of the, the learning that you mentioned where you learned a lot about what didn't work. I like that line, uh, which yeah. kind of was your first kick at the can to figure out this is what I want to build. Didn't work. So you kind of moved on and then you end up getting into a position where you did find something that was changing the way an environment worked. You built out in that, in the insurance space. Can you give a few tips of what you learned that didn't work? that could probably help others to pay attention to when they're building their companies? Yeah. So one thing that comes to mind, Jeff, is um, the, the company that I worked for in the late 90s, um, the CEO believed that we could launch multiple verticals at the same time. Um, you know, maybe one in healthcare, one in mortgage, uh, one in real estate, et cetera. And what I what we learned the hard way um, is that that's just a good way to go through the cash three times as fast, and then you end up with no vertical fully developed before you're out of money again. And so, um, it's tempting for entrepreneurs, I think, sometimes to hedge their bets or want to hedge their bets. You know, this technology could work here and it could work there, so let me try a little bit. But at some point in my opinion, you have to burn the boats. You have to commit to one and put all your chips on that table. And um, hopefully if you get it over the edge where that becomes cash flow positive, you can use some of that cash to maybe start another one later. But, but if, if you try to hedge your bets too long, you end up killing the goose, if you will. Yeah. I think there was um I'm trying to remember, I think it was Staples and they had that fast go button or something. on all Oh, yeah. Pencils. Yeah. <laughs> I want to punch that button right now and have this, the whole screen light up. Yeah. Uh, that was brilliant. I, I think so much companies tend to get carried away with the excitement level of having discussions with many different companies and verticals yep. that some of it is, as you mentioned, it's testing. But a lot of it's, uh, I'm going to play it on the ego side, which is they're just drawn into these deep conversations and they're tackling everybody thinking that this is going to close, this is going to close, this one's huge, this one does this. And they forget that they don't have a focused vertical and the fastest way to close is to have focus on that one vertical. 
and allow yourself because herd mentality would say that if you line up enough people in the same industry, same space, they'll all want to be part of that growth or that opportunity because you're solving that one problem. And I think I couldn't agree more. Well, yeah. And if you do forget that, um, you're one step closer to basically the death of the business. Um, again, in the early stages, especially before you take other people's money, um, you know, maybe there's a time to experiment and to go kick the cans and so forth. But at some point you have to commit to one and, and then pick the lock on that vertical. And it is like picking a lock. It's not, it's, it's not just sitting there for the taking. Um, especially if you're a, a, you know, first generation technology play in a space, you are, um, teaching the market as well as learning from the market at the same time. And, um, while you can, you know, that's the way to become the number one player in a space. It also takes longer and normally takes more money. Big time. And, and I think, one of the things that you, you kind of just alluded to as well is that when you start to make um, ground in that area that you're focused on that vertical and you start to get to uh, making dollars, converting clients, that there is a point where you can start to make that differentiator and say, you know what, now we can start to go into another market. We've made some dollars. We've got some profit. Why don't we allocate 10, 20% and try something out here to see where that's going to take us? How much time and effort does the team need to shift in order to be able to focus on this new market? So as you kind of took a lot of this insight as you were going through it the wrong way, I guess, the first time, but getting some good insights and learning, when did you decide that that was a good time to shift? And we see this with product companies where they go to market with 12 products and they think that this is what the market needs. And really they need one product that everybody really likes. And then you can start after a year or two, after you have some really strong market penetration to start to offer something new because you've got a really good structure. You've got a lot of commercialization, a lot of product stability. Is there kind of a timing that you would say, you mentioned profitability, is that when you know the trigger's there or is there well, something? Well, I think it's past profitability I, because it's, it really when, it's really when that vertical starts to become or move towards a cash cow position where you are afforded enough bandwidth. It's not just about the money. It's also about the mind share of your organization, because as you split off a second vertical, the company essentially splits. And so um, if you don't do that right, you can end up in no man's land again. And so, um, you know, and you can go raise more money to do that. That's one way to do it. That's often done. Um, Sometimes I think that you, certain startups uh, can raise so much money that affords them a lot of bad decisions for a while. And um, some of the better deals that I have been a part of, um, these are not going to compete in Silicon Valley deals, okay? These are not going to be unicorn companies, but solid companies that can get to tens of millions of dollars in revenue uh, and can be a nice tuck in acquisition for a bigger player. Um, you know, I, I just think that, you know, you make smarter decisions when you really know every dollar in your bank account and where you have going to have to allocate it. 
um, it forces you to make smarter decisions. And actually, I think in many ways, that's actually really good for us as, as startup entrepreneurs and founders. Um, yeah. I agree. There's uh, I went to a talk probably, I'm going to say it was five, six years ago. And it was with um, Steam, Steam Whistle Breweries. They're a big mm-hmm. brewer in, in Canada. And the founder CEO was on stage. And outside of all of the crazy things he talked about from his brewmaster that sleeps in the brew house uh, for months and months, just making the beer, um, was that he had been making the same beer for 20 years straight, the same beer. And he said he never changed, didn't deviate. Everybody got exactly what they bought. And we focused on just this beer. We wanted to be the best beer you possibly could buy in this vertical, nothing more, nothing less. And 20 years later, billion dollars worth of sales have gone through this company. They've now created a second product. So you can see- I mean, I think that's a great example. That's a great example, Jeff. You know, uh, sometimes- founders will tell me, well, how do I know how to segment my market? You know, how do I know? And, you know, the key to that is what I have told my teams is what do, what can we be in the the best in the world at? Now that means we're going to have to segment the market down at least one level beyond or below what the current defined market might be that might be, you know, not very well defined. Um, Our example was, you know, we came from a document management software, kind of a horizontal platform. And what we decided to do was become the best in the world at the US mortgage document handling space. That's all we, now we were faced with along the way, Jeff, I had people come to me and say, you know, your technology would work in the hospital networks, all the network entities that are connected around a big hospital. And so we had to make a decision, you know, do we want to, do we want to go try that at the same time we're doing this? And ultimately we made a decision to write a business plan to do that and to shelve it until we got the mortgage thing printing money and it worked. I like that. Shelve it till it prints money. Well, you know, when we sold the business, money. when we sold the business, I, we showed Xerox the plan for healthcare and they ascribed some value to that plan. Um, even though it hadn't been executed on because we were able to, you know, have the track record to execute on one they gave us partial credit on executing a second one, but we didn't even have to do it. Uh, that's awesome. And that brings a lot of value back to your business, to the IP and knowing that the team could still execute this in time if they implement that and when they're building you into their company. Right. That's right. No, I love that. And those are, I think that's very valuable. And I think that's one subject that doesn't get touched on enough is really helping founders understand what that market fit is and then helping them really stay focused on it. Uh, because I would find that over time, entrepreneurs become empowered with imagination. And through being the top dog in their business, that imagination flows even more because they're always now trying to solve problems. They solve the main one, which they think they've solved and they've figured out exactly how it needs to work. And they think that it's going to be seamless run all the way to the top and to the bank when there's a million problems that they're going to be faced with 
And that focus will allow them and their teams to be able to divert and have the problems and solve those other ones that are out there inside their core business. Yeah. But their focus is the product or the service that they're on and that they don't have to really break off too much from, but at least they know it inside and out. They can face problems quicker, faster and commercialize themselves, which gets them to that M&A process that you went through yeah. because you were able to take a market over. They saw that there was a gap that they needed that in their space, the Eurox that is. Um, and that became an, a lot easier of an acquisition. No, that that's right. I think um, very often founders, not all founders, but many founders fall in love with their ideas so much. And while they don't always want to admit it, they're afraid to ask the market around about it because they're afraid that the answer might not be what they want it to be. And so what they do is they keep working on it. They keep adding to it and making it more complicated before they go out and ask the market for the honest feedback and truth and listen with a humility. I mean, I had a lot of people tell me that my idea for the U S mortgage space would never work. What I had to do is take that and couple it with other feedbacks and make a determination as the CEO of what I believe the truth to be. People are always going to tell you that your idea sucks and they're always going to, some others are going to tell you that it's brilliant, even if it isn't. And you have to discern what the truth is based on, a very limited amount of data points. As you know, as an entrepreneur, you don't get reams of data to make decisions like you do in the corporate world. You gotta make, sometimes on one or two pieces of data, you gotta make a, a big bet. And um, so I think the, the more market feedback, true, honest questions of the market and the ability to call the baby ugly if it's ugly early, is where I see most successful founders make it through. Um, I have, you know, I also believe that the CEO has to be to some degree a selling CEO. If the CEO wants to delegate the pitching of the company or even the pitching of the product in the early days to someone else, um, I generally will pass on that deal even if they had a patent turning salt water into gold bars, I'm probably not going to do that deal because I want a CEO who can, who is the representative of the company and can lead the rest of the people through what will be a battlefield sometimes. Um, and I find that unless the technical founder can emerge into that role that, um, you know, um, anyway, you gotta have a selling CEO in my book. That's just, that just takes the, what's a very, very difficult stacked against you business startups and make it even harder if you don't have a selling CEO. I love it. I'm hitting the red button again. I think that uh, <laughs> that's bang on. And, and the reason why I like the way you say by calling the selling CEO is that you know, even throughout this process of that learning, as you kind of were talking about earlier, where you're learning through uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you're not an operational selling CEO, some of these things you can miss. 
Some of them yes. you don't actually learn how to pivot from because you're not in the weeds. And, you That's know, correct. some of that you don't need to be in the weeds. Sure. When you're at a series B, C, D, you're not in the weeds, but when you're really early on and you're learning what a customer needs and you're learning what's going to fail, what works, what doesn't work. If you're not in there learning your customers and learning what they have to say and what their feedback is, then you're two, three leagues removed and problems are going to happen way too fast. And you're not going to be able to shift and change because everybody else doesn't care about your business the way you do. And if you're not in the weeds at the beginning, you're going to have a tough time trying to find market fit and understanding where this business needs to go in the next two to three years. I just hit the red button for you. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to buy this red button. <laughs> no, I think it's even more than that. I, I think companies that lose their way, whether they're public companies or just large private companies, often lose their way because leadership isn't paying attention to the customer. You know, they're in the ivory tower or they're, you know, whatever. I mean, they, you have to stay close to who's parting with their hard-earned money to buy your uh, product or service. And if you, you lose that, you know, that changes a lot over time too. It's not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. So um, you have to stay close to the customer. And if you stay close to the customer, you can avoid a lot of pain. Agreed. When I, when I worked in corporate way back in the day, I remember that I had bucketed how they worked their CEOs and the CEO that was coming in for high growth, the CEO, CEO was always a product guy or woman, and they knew the product and the client inside and out. They yep. couldn't tell you how the rest of the business ran and yep. they didn't care how it ran because the board and everybody else would run it. All they cared about is they knew how to sell. And then when the, the company was going under a restructure, it was all about the numbers and that was the yep. CFO. So they would put the CFO in there to crunch down and lock it all down. Yep. 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 And you got regrowth, it. Regrowth, you put in a marketing person. So this is the, the idea of how a business works at the high end for big corporate. And that's pretty much how it's got to work at an early stage as well. You got to get in there and figure it out because if you're not in there, you're not going to survive. Here's the other thing I would say. Um, and I don't know what your experience is with this. Um, I've seen, companies that hire a VP of sales too early. Um, and let me tell you why I think that can happen. First of all, in the, the first three to 10 customers, they don't want to buy from someone that has sales on their business card. They want to buy from the CEO. They want to look the CEO in the eyes and make sure that there's a, a bond, a personal bond where basically I'm taking a risk by, by, you know, signing up with you. Don't screw me. That's basically the bond, right? So they don't want a middleman in there. At the same time, you don't want a true VP of sales. And when I say a VP of sales, a VP of sales is best used in a business where, the, where we know what the product or service is. We know how to pitch it. We know the profile of the buying customer and basically we just need to do it. We know what it is and we need to do it. But in my experience, you know, and one of the things that I love to do is, and I call it, I pick the lock on the market. You need a lock picker. It, it, you don't need the scaling salesman until you've figured out how to do it, right? And, and those two people are motivated by different things, Jeff. They're, 
you know, a salesman is a good salesman is motivated by turning tricks and selling big deals. The CEO is normally motivated by solving the problem, figuring out the problem and solving it. And, and so it's two different discrete skill sets and they often don't live together. In other words, I'm not the guy to blow out a big sales force. It's not what I want to do. It's not what I'm gifted at. I'm not what I, I like to pick the locks with a small group of, you know, intimates, you know, my co-founders. And then once we get the lock picked, I hire the right people to blow it out. And I think that's overlooked a lot of times in, in the startup world, that it's a different skill set to sell the first deals as it is to scale. I'm hitting the red button right there. It's hot. <laughs> Punching the button right now. That's, that's awesome. And uh, what I like about the, the way you bucketed those two um, is I, I like that you said the CEO, you shouldn't be changing this VP process until you've learned it, you've got it down pat, and you've built the process. You've turned it into a cookie-cutting machine. And why is that important? Because when that VP comes in, he's in there to print money. And he can't yes. print money if you haven't figured out how to make That's correct. Cut properly. That is absolutely right. That's not what mo he's turning tricks. That's what he's he or she are really good at. And so if you bring him into an environment where that's not figured out, they're going to fail and they're going to feel terrible and there's going to be a lot of gnashing of teeth internally. So you, you, you've got to do it in the right order. Yeah, and I like that. And then taking that CEO side and saying that they solve problems, and you're right, they have to solve problems. They're the end goal. They're the, uh, they're the uprights. You know, Nothing goes through if they don't solve it. So they really that's have right. to figure out who fits in what stream. And, and it's interesting the way you say that about picking locks. Um, my whole theory around the, the whole sales cycle is that for myself is that I've got a hundred doors in front of me and my job is to pick every one of those locks. The difference is, is that when I pick the lock and I open the door, I'm shuffling the team in there because everybody else is better at um, resource management, holding hands, you know, kissing babies, all that stuff. The team can do that. The rest of it is I'm on the next door, next door, next door. So as you're picking the locks, that builds process. And then that's where you can start to tie in. Hey, you know what? Now that we've got this far, it seems like we really figured out a way to break into all these locks. Now we've got to bring someone in that can scale that. And I think that's yeah. uh, kind of where you're going. And I, and I, I love that analogy. And I, I do think that through all of these things we've just talked about is that a lot of this falls back onto that CEO really understanding their business, understanding what they're trying to sell and then figuring out And the word I love using, even if it doesn't fit is commercializing what they're doing. Yep. Yep. What's, what's the go to market and you know, why would somebody, if, if, if your product or service costs $50,000, why would somebody spend a baby Mercedes Benz for that? Tell me, you know, it's not just $50,000. It's like that represents something that they could have had and enjoyed. So why would they do that? And what's motivating them? And what, what is the problem underneath the problem? And how do I understand it? Where, how do I get to the soft underbelly of that? And really craft not only a solution, but also a message around the solution so that your target market can easily digest what it is you have to offer if it is in fact good for them and, and also be willing to say, 
you know what? In your situation, I don't think this can help you that much. And, you know, you'll be surprised and if you've ever said, no, I don't think I want to sell this to you because of this, this, and this reason. Well, they'll be going, holy cow, I would buy anything from that individual if they ever came back to me, you know, because you just you're actually putting yourself on the same side of the problem as your customer and asking the question from the other side of the table. Yep. I love yeah. that. So now taking kind of all this great material on how a business kind of structures themselves and how you move forward. Now you kind of started working, you sold your company. You said that the company changed without Xerox kind of expecting that at the time of sale. So you spent some time rebuilding the company. Well, it was the financial crisis. We didn't realize that mortgage companies were going to go out of business at an unprecedented rate because they would get their warehouse lines pulled and they're gone in 24 hours. So, so no, we didn't, you know, I mean, none of us Xerox didn't know and we didn't know. I mean, there was a little bit of, a little bit of froth there, but it was nothing like what we experienced in 08 and even into 09. 08 was a terrible era. 08, my bank account said I should be very happy and it was the most miserable year of my life. Well, that's not a bad thing either. So I guess, but what I liked about this transaction that went through is that you fell into the world's biggest use case, which is Xerox. Everybody mm -hmm. loves Xerox and they have since day one, they've built process. They've commercialized how selling works. It's mm -hmm. a very, very, very strong business. It's a case study in every um, MBA, every uh, BA type course. What can you share that you learned from being in that commercialized space inside of the business that you had to restructure? Were there a few elements that you got out of the corporate slash entrepreneur world that really kind of helped you now that you've gone into venture investing that you kind of pulled from that processing and things that Xerox really brought to the table? Well, um, I mean, Xerox, I mean, Xerox is just a huge company, right? I mean, but what, what they have that makes them dangerous as other large companies is a huge balance sheet, right? Um, in other words, we did deals with companies because we were owned by Xerox that we could not have done on our own. I could not have gone into Freddie Mac in Washington, D.C. and got them to run all their loans through my platform. But with the CEO and CFO of Xerox, we made that happen. And um, so I think it was kind of like, um, you know, they owned us, but it was also like they left us alone as an operating unit. And so we had the benefits of the big mothership with, at least in the first couple of years, very little of the... Um, over domineering oversight, even though we were in the teeth of the, the biggest financial crisis, you know, in decades. So, so um, I was grateful. I, the, the CEO of Xerox, when they acquired us was a woman by the name of Ann Mulcahy. And she is largely credited with saving them from bankruptcy. And when my investment banker gave me an article that was in Newsweek about her, I was just like moved to the point where I said to him, don't screw this up. I want to work for her. 
And I really wanted to be a part of that organization because I mean, she's, she's still one of the most amazing business leaders I've ever had the fortune, good fortune to be around. And um, anyway, that's amazing. I'm getting goosebumps because you <laughs> actually thought about if my company is here and with the, with the management and direction of this person, we could actually become this much better and bigger. So it gave you something to go after and want to accomplish it and then get that certain learning that you took over three years of being under that management. That's huge. Uh, we yeah. know, when you talk to a startup and you say, Hey, where do you want to be in seven years? Where do you want to exit to? They're like, well, I don't know. And uh, you're like, just find one company that you think could really dominate and having yeah. you on board. And it's the toughest thing for anybody to visualize. And you guys obviously did that. And it well, worked. it wasn't my idea. Uh, it wasn't my idea. They came after us and I was, you know, open to having a dialogue with them. But after I read that article, I just wanted to work in an organization that had a leader like that. I, I, I was proud to be a part of that organization. And um, anyway, so um, yeah, I was, I was grateful. I mean, the first time I got to meet her face to face, was right before a big uh, global executive meeting that happened to be that year in Atlanta. And after the acquisition, we were planning on growing our headcount about 40%, but because we, it was the teeth of the financial crisis, we had to do a layoff two months after the acquisition. So it was awful. But she came down and came to my office before that meeting, which I ended up going to and spending a few days there with other executives. But she was just really, I mean, she knew I felt bad, but she's like, you know, we're, we're going to get through this. And she's just the kind of leader. I mean, I bet you, you know, you probably worked for a handful of people in your career that you'd like take a bullet for. And she was one of those. Oh, that's amazing. And, and you're right. You got to find everybody needs a good, strong leader to run a business, but I think it makes a big difference when you can kind of vision how your business is going to fit in and how you can work yeah. with in that leadership yeah. role too. You can't always be the lead entrepreneur, right? You have to kind of that's step right. in and work with everybody else. That's right. Yeah. I, I felt the, the found the same through, uh, well, through the years of doing even on the venture side that we've been managing and working with, but um, there was a new, um, her name's uh, Genevieve Tangay, and she's the head of Ange Quebec. And she just came on to Ange Quebec. And as soon as I got connected to her, I was so ecstatic. I'm like, this lady is like going to change the way investing works in Quebec. And Ange Quebec had this kind of rougher name around their investing. But then when you see this profile where she came from, you're like, man, this is going to be huge. And they've been shifting and changing quite a bit. So it gets you excited because the more of these types of players that come into a space that you see that just isn't surviving the right way, it makes a yeah. big difference to how you play in this space because you get excited at the opportunities they're going to now come out of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, leadership is, uh, is key to anything you do. So, um, so now in the last 10 years that you've been, you've been investing, um, are there a couple of things that you could say that you look for in investing that really stands out through all of these experiences that we just talked to and what kind of derives a great startup or a great leader and an entrepreneur? Are there a couple of points, maybe three or four that you feel that really stand out that you look for in a company or in a leader that will yeah. cross the line. I have a, Jeff, I have a sequence I kind of go through. Um, one is 
it's a big leg up if I know one or more of the founders already. Um, or I, I have close relationship with somebody who do, else who does. Um, then I get into the business idea. What is the business idea? You know, I mean, if I'm not interested in that, you know, the problem solution, you know, I'd probably lose altitude quick. But if given that I still have interest, then I ask, why is this founder or founding team uniquely qualified to lead this? And why now? Why does this matter to that we should, they should do this now? Um, and is this group a group that can get this thing into orbit? Um, then I look at things as an angel investor. These are things you, you look at more than you do if you're in a venture, I think, or even pri or private equity. But how capital intensive is this business likely to be? Um, because if I got to do five rounds and raise 200 million to, you know, half a billion dollars, I'm probably going to be so in insignificant on the cap table um, and lose control of the deal that, you know, I'm not, that's not as exciting to me as maybe we can do this sort of one or two rounds, maybe. Um, and then honestly, I, and then I look at the valuation and the terms, those are not insignificant because valuation and terms are so frothy right now. Um, and you know, on average, you're going to be in a deal five years, seven years. I just exited a deal last week or two weeks ago. I was in for 10 years. Um, got half of my money back, which I'm pretty happy about because um, I thought I lost all of it. But um, so the valuation in terms are, are, are important. They're not everything, but they're not unimportant. But I make the decision at the end, once I check all those and I'm still interested, how do I feel I can work with a CEO? Is the CEO coachable? Is there a level of humility? Does the CEO think he or she knows everything already? How will they be when the, you know, everything's great when you write a check. Everybody's, that's a happy day. What happens when we're down to our last 10,000 in the bank and some very difficult decisions? How are they going to function when? when, you know, they're in a vice and, and the pressure's on. And, and so uh, you can't always get that right, but that's something that I, I look at and think about. And, and I know having done 25 of these or so that uh, it's very rare that you get one that goes from zero to a hundred without almost wrecking the car a couple of times. That is true. <laughs> or they wrecked the car a few times, but uh, it still was drivable to get. To the <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, you're not going a hundred, but maybe you can at least get off the ramp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Get some fuel and fix that front brake. So in the, in these things, it, it comes back down to team again and, and teams obviously heavily important in any type of investment. How do you explore that side of um, explore that side of the CEO? Like, how do you get into the relationship side? How long does that take? Is it months, weeks, days, hours? And how do you kind of propel yourself into that to get yourself excited about this company at the same time? Cause you know, they're busy, you're busy. Yeah. 
really yeah. gets that trigger going. The the other element that I didn't spend much time on that is actually in there is that is there somebody else that I know and trust that is in the deal already? And what what feedback do they have? For example, I I looked at a deal three or four months ago that a really close friend of mine, investing friend and friend friend is, was in, he's on the board or was on the board at the time. And I wanted to do that deal. I was predisposed to write a check in that deal. But when I got to the CEO coachability and their cap table was a little wacky and I'm like, this guy doesn't get it. This is, this show is not about him. It's about the company. And he thought it was about him. And I said, dude, I'm out. I'm not putting any money behind that. You know, life's too short. I'm not giving him a, uh, an S class, let alone a C class uh, or something more than that, because I don't think he gets it. And uh, another guy that was looking at the deal that I also respect came to the same conclusion. And so we, we just walked from it. And ultimately, my friend resigned from the board. He was so upset about it because he knew we were right. You know. That's interesting. And it carries weight. And uh, sometimes you don't see things that are in front of you and it takes other outside perspectives yeah. and you got to be open to hear it. And you're not always going to get it right. You're not going to always get it right. In fact, you're going to miss a lot, but you at least have need to have your eyes open and be asking the questions. And again, entrepreneurs are used to making decisions based on finite data, very limited data set. Um, but I find honestly that some of the ones that I've, I've messed up on had I spent more time looking into the background of the CEO and maybe asking more questions of people that they had worked with in the past that I would have found the problems before I wrote the check. I'm thinking so, back to, to uh, uh, the companies now that I've had that have failed. One was purely investors. Another one was, um, yeah, the CEO, 100% the CEO. And then another one was, um, no, both of those were the CEO. And, and it's interesting, like one thing that I stand behind is that I'm not, I'm not there to make friends with the CEO. I'm there to make business um, acquaintances or whatever you want to classify that as. Here's, here's the question that, this is a question that I often ask the CEO before I write the check. Oftentimes when I have the checkbook open, sometimes before that, do you want to be king or rich? And they go, what do you mean? I go, think about it. Just make a decision right now. Do you want to be king or rich? And if they say king, I say, explain that. Because that's the wrong answer. If you want to be king then you're not going to manage my money the way that needs to be managed that we can all make some. And so if the right answer is five years from now that we need to replace you so that you can make a lot of money and you're okay with that, then that's the kind of relationship I want to have. But if you're guarding this spot, this CEO role, at the end of a bayonet, whether or not you're the right person. I mean, it, when you write a check, you wouldn't write a check on a deal if you thought you had to replace the CEO in the first week. You wouldn't no. do that. No. But, um, but you, you might see that that CEO can probably take you a couple of years and then you might not be able to, or three years, you know, you might see some, 
you know, finite growth in, in that individual. And that's, you know, you want to be king or you want to be rich. And, you know, that's a very telling, the, the answer to that question can oftentimes be very telling. I like that. I'm actually going to add that into my questions. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I'm thinking back. One of them was market fit. The other one was over time. I think the person, uh, I think there's, and I don't know how you refine this or where there is the checks to this, but if they don't get the qualified market fit, then they stop. They just feel like, ah, this isn't going to work anymore. And then the CEO kind of steps down. And you're like, what the hell? Like you can yeah. pivot, you can change. What, where, how do you lose energy? From well, this? well, well, or I, I've had a situation where the CEO goes, here's what, you know, here's what I sold you. This is what I wanted to do. This is some new learning that we got that has convinced me that what we wanted to do is not doable. What do you guys as the investors want to do? You want the rest of your money back or do you, here's an alternative we could try to pivot on, but that's not why you wrote the checks. So what do you got? That is a, a CEO with integrity because um, I mean, what we do is risky. What the founding teams do is risky. What the angel investors do is very risky. They're not all going to work. Um, sometimes, you know, and all of them, you have calculated risks in them. But when I, when I have a situation where a CEO is that honest, I'm like, even if we run out of money, I would consider backing that one again. Yep. I love it. Uh, well, we're going to transition a little bit now. And uh, again, appreciate that. That's amazing insight. Um, question. So in the time that you've been working with startups and including the ones you've invested in, is there any story that kind of really just topped over with uh, good or bad? We like good stories, of course, uh, that just showed that, you know, maybe one of your founders, she or he just blew it out of the water and you couldn't believe what it took to be an entrepreneur. It really does resonate. You know, entrepreneurship is tough, but this is what really made you kind of think, man, these guys did an amazing job. Well, you know, I was thinking about sharing a different one with you, but the way you just asked that question, I'm going to change the company. This is a uh, investment I did earlier this year. And it was with the same individual that resigned from the other board. He brought this deal to me and it was a technical CEO, very technical guy never run a company before and he wanted me to give him some feedback on his investor pitch so i was basically brought in to kind of like show him where all the holes were and fill it in and what the company the company's called stoke space technologies and this is a founding team that came out of blue origin and they built the largest, largest rocket engine. These guys built the largest rocket engine for Jeff Bezos at Blue Origin. And then they left to start Stoke. And um, these are truly rocket scientists, okay? They are rocket scientists. And, and the vision is they wanted to build the world's first 100% reusable rocket to deliver low and mid-level satellites into space. 100% reusable. So I'm sitting in there just like we are on a Zoom call and I'm ready to like find a piece of, you know, just get in there and kind of, you know, tear it up a little with the guy. And I ended up committing to do the deal before the video was over. 
I actually committed. So yes, I mean, there's two companies out of 25. I made the decision on the first time I met them. And that was one of them. And so it wasn't a huge investment for me, but um, that company has subsequently done another round and they're getting ready to go out for a series a um, and they've got some big, big companies around them now. Um, and it's exciting. It's really exciting when you look I didn't understand it, but when you look at what the market's going to be for satellite deployment over the next 20 years, it's ridiculous. And it's not easy to get a single satellite into orbit. You got to hitch a ride on some big rocket now. And not only is it expensive, you don't get to go up when you want to. So these guys, I think, are in potential to carve out a niche. But the, the real story is for this was, I went in to be a hard ass and I ended up writing a check. <laughs> so they, they, they went uh, above and beyond by impressing you on all accounts. So that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. The CEO is, you know, like he was born uh, smarter than I ever was or will be. And yet he has a dose of humility because, you know, in, in in terms of designing the world leading world's rocket engines, you know, he's right up there at the top, but he's never run a company before, but he is open to learning and has just been amazing to work with. So, um, yeah. All right. We're going to jump into our rapid fire questions. You ready? All right. All right. Pick one or the other. Founder or co-founder? Founder. Unicorn or four-year 10X exit? Four-year 10X exit. Tech or CPG? Tech. Brand or tech? Tech. AI or blockchain? Blockchain. First-time founder or second or third-time founder? Mm. Second-time founder. First money in or Series A? First money. Angel or VC? Angel. Board seat or observer? Either. Lead or follow? Lead. Equity or interest payments? Equity squared. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Uh, Favorite part of investing? Helping others get what they want. Uh, Number of companies invested per year two two on average preferred terms uh preferred straight preferred okay uh verticals of focus i prefer b2b SaaS, but we'll do well here's what i won't do i won't do healthcare healthcare tech and i won't do b2c Anything else is potential. Okay. Two things that a startup can do to help themselves stand out amongst the crowd. First one, the number one job of a CEO is to not run out of money. It's not to make the investors rich. It's not to change the world. It's to not run out of money. So when the CEO needs to understand that, and that's another question I ask before I write the check, what's your number one job? And if they say to make you a lot of money, I say, nope, it's 
to not run out of money. So that's one. And two, things change and often change rapidly. Don't be married to the past if the past has left you. I love it. Perfect. All right, now we're going to do the personal questions. <laughs> Book or movie? Movie. Superman or Batman? Batman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Ice cream bar. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Mm. C. No. <laughs> Bezos. All right. Uh, <laughs> Arsenal or Manchester United? Manchester United. Terrible. Bike or rollerblades? <laughs> Bike. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Mac. Trophy or money? Money. Money Beer is Beer or wine? Ooh, yes. Both? Yeah. Alarm clock or mobile phone? Mobile. Hotel or hostel? Hotel. I actually added this question in. King or rich? <laughs> rich. <laughs> All right, you're in. You're in. Uh, last political question. Will Trump go to jail? Yes or no for his tax issues? No idea. I'm betting no, but I have no idea. Yeah, I just like to throw that one in there for fun. I'm yeah. going to say no too. Um, okay, favorite sports team? Uh, well, this is down here, Clemson Tigers. I'm a, it's a college football. I watched them That's play a year and a half ago. Did you? Yeah. Where? It was in, uh, was it in Pittsburgh when I was there? I was going through Pittsburgh to Washington and, uh, I can't remember where they were playing. I think they, they played, would have played against, um, That's okay. That, yeah. I think it was in Pittsburgh. I saw them play at the university. They were playing against them. I'm pretty sure yeah. Clemson was playing against them and they actually well, won. I teach, I teach there on Monday nights. I teach a startup class at Clemson on Monday night. So I oh, went amazing. to school there. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, they have a, they have a good football team. So yeah, they do. Yeah. Their coach makes a lot of money. Yeah. He does. Okay. <laughs> even That's after tax. Dabo can make that work even after tax. Yep. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, favorite movie and character you would play? I love Forrest Gump. Character I would play? Oh, I would play Clint Eastwood in one of those Drifter movies. All right. I don't know. That works. That works. Uh, all right. What? Oh, last question on this one is your. What's your favorite book? Uh, business book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got two. One is crossing the chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Um, it's an old book, but how to, it's really a Bible on how to market to technology companies. And the other one I like is also probably now 20 years old is blue ocean strategy. And it's how to create a new market space where, Comp and to make competition irrelevant. So I love both. I, I read when I was growing my company, I would read each of those books once a year. The ocean strategies and yeah. 
crossing the chasm. Yep. yep. I think I actually have Blue Ocean Strategies here somewhere. And uh, I have agreed on the uh, crossing the chasm. I think I've read that one as well. Great books. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. What is your superpower? Sales. When you boil it all down, I'm a sales guy. And, and you know, the other thing is now I'm, I'm going to be 59 in a couple months. So, um, I, I'm not really work. I, I've made enough that I'm good. I'm now, it's now like, what can I leave and help others with? It's just, it's a lot more fun. And, uh, I don't need to have as much as Jeff Bezos has. I'm good. That's good. It's the realization of it. The hunt yeah. is over. You can start spreading it out and helping other people. Well, it's, it's like the best thing about having a little extra is the freedom. It gives you to do whatever you want to do. And it's not having a big bank account. It's freedom. Agreed. It's great. I love it. Well said. Well, Greg, I'm going to say thank you very much for all your time today. Like I always do, took lots of notes. I'm a note taker. Uh, copy down some of your lines, add it in your question. So it was a brilliant conversation. I appreciate all of it, all of your time. And the way we like to end our show is like to give you the last word. So anything that you want to share to startups or to investors, I, I turn it over to you. But again, thank you for all your time today. Well, Jeff, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed my time together with you uh, this afternoon. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm passionate about helping, you know, about the startup world. It's where, um, new jobs are created. New jobs are not being created in big companies. Uh, if you look at the net net, it's all new growth from underneath. And so as we, as a continent, uh, you know, can, uh, lean into helping, um, the younger generation, the next generation share some of the things that we've learned. Um, they'll share some of the things that they've learned. You know, we can help, help the next generation get what they want and to help enfranchise the generation that follows them. So let's um, it's fun. If you're an angel investor, just for the money, you're in the wrong field. The, the other dividends you get are actually working with the entrepreneurs and the satisfaction that comes with that. So, I wholeheartedly agree. Awesome. Thank you very much again. Okay, that was a great conversation with uh, Greg Smith out of Atlanta. Awesome. He shared lots of great insights. Uh, I love the whole thing around, you know, the CEO has got to be selling. That's what it's all about. Um, strong background in, in building a company, selling a company, and now he's been investing for the last 10 years. And um, I love the, you know, the top five things on what he looks for when making an investment. Uh, relationships or others are bringing relationships to him so that he can make an investment. Uh, why is this the team now that's going to solve this problem? Uh, how do they capitalize? And will this business be capital intensive in the next 10 years? Or can they grow and build this business without making it too capital intensive? Um, and of course, like he said, valuations and terms are really important. And the last one is, can you work with the CEO? So uh, again, awesome, awesome interview. Um, really excited for uh, all the great things that Greg's done and appreciate all the sharing. Uh, lots of insight there for the, for the startup founders. 
So thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. And you can also check us out at supportersfund.com uh, and for startup events at opn.ninja. Thank you very much and, and have a great week.